The following message is brought to you by Sovereign Grace Church. We're honored that you're taking the time to stream this sermon. It's our hope that you are receiving this sermon as a supplement to your active participation in a local body of believers where pastors who know you and love you faithfully preach for your benefit every week. If you are not a member of a local church, then we'd encourage you to find a local church today. For more information about Sovereign Grace Church or other churches in our denomination, please visit www.sobgracemn.org. Well, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Revelation. Pastor Rick is on vacation, so you can be praying for him. So I'll be diving into a different text, still in the New Testament. We'll be in the book of 1 John. Since last September, the College and Career Ministry, which is our singles ministry here at Sovereign Grace Church, has been going through 1 John. And what we've discovered is that there's no discernible, logical argument from the beginning to the end of the book. So if you're like, you think like a lawyer systematically, this book will drive you crazy. If you're like me and you think, you think circularly and you speak circularly all the time, this is wonderful. You know, you're not going to think, you know, Pat, it's not like, unlike Paul, who's very logical in his thinking. One, com- one commentator states it like this, there's little direct progression. John thinks around a succession of related topics. Yes, that's me. With this said, we, we can discern in... First John, a few themes that are woven in and out of this letter. We can discern that John wants the church to believe and know Jesus and Jesus Christ crucified and Jesus Christ resurrected and wants them to believe the gospel. You go to chapter 5 of 1 John, he, he continually says, we know, we know, we know. He, he has a pattern there. John also wants the church to hold to this sound doctrine don't let go of what you know to be true. John also wants the church to live, live in a manner that reflects what they believe. In other words, John wants the church to live in a manner which God has created them for. To walk in holiness and thereby bring God glory. But life can be hard, right? Right? And exhortations and encouragement is needed to live day by day for faith in the gospel. Which means John, this tender pastor theologian, does some heart work with the recipients of this letter in the first century and today. It's, it's the kind of heart work where he is graciously and gently going to lead us to the cross. So today's passage, and I hope this message, implores us to see our sin. We're going to be we're going to be honest about it. It's going to encourage us to walk in the light and then lead us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where just as we sang and we're going to see in this word where the grace of God is poured out upon his people. And while I, walk, I will talk at length about the heart work, we, will always, um, we always just need to realize there's an ocean of grace that God provides for his people, an ocean of grace that was, as we read in, in Titus 2, to train us for godliness and good deeds. I love to watch movies or shows that make a contrast to be, between light and darkness. For example, I've always loved Star Wars. I can even put up with the prequels if you fast forward enough through them. <clears throat> uh, I'm not going to join the Star Wars fan club like some folks in this church, but 
the contrast between the dark side and the forest paints a clear contrast between good and evil, right? Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Kylo Ren versus Rey, the rebellion versus the resistance. You throw in a Wookiee and you blow up a few planets, guess what you have? A multi-million dollar film. The contrast between good and evil, and as we will see today, between light and darkness is not unusual in the Bible. It's actually quite common. Specifically, in John's writings, light and darkness are described in a way that is often rejected by our culture. John uses a word absent in the vocabulary of the culture. It's this word, sin. Just think about it for a moment. When's the last time you watched a secular movie, a TV program, uh, listened to a song where you heard the word sin to define something that is bad or morally objectionable? It's rare. Even in programming, which presents a clear contrast between darkness and light and good and evil, the, the tension between the contrast is not understood with sin, but with ideas like betrayal, struggles, hardships, rebellion, or shortcomings. Yes, all these ideas are used to help Christians describe sin, but clearly the word sin is not used in secular programming for a reason. Now, why? Why is that? Here are a few reasons why. I'm sure there's others. We don't hear that word often because it feels judgmental. At least that's the perception. To say that one person sins or is a sinner is to risk hurting feelings, right? Especially in this culture where we're so sensitive of feelings. And so we don't use the word sin. We kind of talk around it. Also, if the word sin can be kept from the vocabulary of the culture, the moral boundaries of the culture becomes more flexible, elastic, and even relative to each individual, meaning what I think is sin might be different from that person over there. So we just don't use the word. It's uncomfortable. Now, as much as I would like culture to adopt a biblical worldview, that is not my expectation this morning. However, it is my expectation that the church hold to a biblical worldview of light and darkness, which means understanding how sin affects light, darkness, and the life of the Christian. I agree <clears throat> with Pastor Rick, who often says, we have to be careful because the culture is creeping into the church, right? You've heard that. And for some churches, it's not a creep. It's a floodgate which has been opened up. I've seen local churches remove the category of sin completely. Instead of using words, instead of using the word sin, they use the same words the culture does, struggles, um, shortcomings, hardships, etc. So what's my point? My friends, to remove the category of sin undercuts the gospel of grace and emboldens the enemy of the gospel, which is sin. When sin is dumbed down, the gospel is misunderstood. However, to have a correct understanding of sin, its nature and effects will uphold the gospel as the most precious truth for sinners to know and for saints to cling to. So I hope by the time 
I'm done, you will see that understanding the inherited and lived out sin in our heart will reveal how amazing the grace of God is for those who trust in Jesus Christ. God has more grace for you. Listen, God has more grace for you than the combined waters of every ocean on earth. God's grace is dispensed to forgive the sinner. God's grace is dispensed for the saved sinner to fight against sin and for the saved sinner to see the cross more clearly every single day that passes. Because of the cross, the grace of God does not free you to sin, but frees you from sin. Like Star Wars, Christians are engaged in a cosmic battle. But instead of the dark side being the enemy, Sin is the enemy. So this morning, my goal is simple. I'm going to allow 1 John 1, verse 5. We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 2. I'm going to allow this passage to speak to our heart, to address our sin, and to show us how glorious Jesus is to redeem us from our sin. That's all. This is going to be some heart work. But I hope this passage and this message leads you to the cross where there is a fountain of grace that causes you to walk in the light. So let's dive into the text. The passage will be behind me. You can pull it up in your smartphone, open your Bible. Beginning of 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now chapter two, verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. There are multiple ways to divide this passage out, but this is how I'm going to approach it this morning. First, I want to explain the metaphor that informs verses 6 to 10, light and darkness. That's the metaphor. Then I'm going to focus in on verses 6 to 10, which provide us with these three if we say statements. If we say, if we say, if we say. And then I'll, then um, by the time I'm done, I'm going to go, go to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to take those two verses. I'm going to apply it to those if, three if we say Statement. So let's first talk about the metaphor of light and darkness. Throughout all, all of Scripture, light is used in some form 275 times and 95 times in the New Testament. So Genesis 1, let there be 
light. I was reading this Psalm 139 to my daughters yesterday. We, we, just, we bumped into light and darkness being used. You just can't read the Psalms without bumping into it. And then you get into Jehanian literature, uh, the Gospel of John, his letters, and apocalyptic literature, which we read are in right now with Revelation. You're going to bump into light and darkness being used as a metaphor. In the Gospel of John and throughout 1 John, the apostle uses the metaphor of light in two specific ways. First, life in Christ is the illumination of light for a darkened soul. The Gospel of John says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So we see in the Gospel of John that the source of light is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light. I just, just think about it. We were singing earlier how good and kind God is. Anyone who has been saved by God's grace knows what their heart was like, how dark it was. And just a little bit of light of the gospel, what does that do? It changes everything. Everything. In 1 John, the character of this light is further defined, explained by upholding God's moral perfection, his holiness. What the Apostle John wants us to see is there's not one blemish, stain, mark, or sin on the character of God. God is absolute perfection. Even the sun has spots of darkness. Think about the sun. It's a beautiful day. It illuminates everything. And yet, it has spots, but not God. Not God. Which means this life Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, is sinless, perfect, without blemish, and righteous. And it's within this metaphor of light and darkness which serves as the backdrop for understanding these three if we say statements, which I now turn my attention to. These if we say statements are signposts located in today's passage. These three if we say statements is John's way of pointing out lies we believe and about the nature of sin and its consequences. John is going to share with us how sin causes us to walk in the darkness. In verses 5 to 7, John connects our sin with lying to others. In verse 8, John connects our sin with lying to ourselves. And in verse 10, John connects our sin with lying to God. So let's just deal with these, if we say statements, one at a time. Here again is verse 6 and 7, which is driving us toward walking in the light. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, so if you say that, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7 is important, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This, if we say, statement focuses on the relationship we have with the fellowship, with the local church, us all, in here. 
There are a few reasons why John is concerned with this lie of walking in darkness while saying we have fellowship. First, John is concerned with those who gather with the fellowship but walk in blatant disobedience. Come to church, but it's clear, gone off the rails. So John's concerned about that. The opposite of practicing truth is disobedience. There's another more subtle way of walking in darkness within the fellowship. John is concerned with those who say they profess Jesus as God, who profess the ancient creeds, people who act like Christians but don't demonstrate their faith in a manner that reflects their belief. Therefore, walking in darkness within the fellowship happens within the soul. Right here. Perhaps your mind instantly goes to the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus calls them out. says, you hypocrites, in Matthew 23. But I'm not so sure that this is the best analogy for this passage. John lovingly and tenderly and patiently is calling out his own, those who come to church week in and week out. He wants to see them grow in faith. He wants to see them grow in holiness. And so he's trying to address their heart. John is addressing people who say they profess Jesus as the Messiah, but live in a manner contrary to the teachings of the Messiah. Here's an example of living in darkness from the fellowship. Many years ago, before I ever came to Sovereign Grace Church, I encountered a gal who was engaged to me, married, attended a really good gospel-preaching church with her fiancé. They sang in the choir together. I mean, they got decked out with the robes and all that kind of stuff. But what their close friends and family didn't know is that they each had an apartment right next door to each other. While they professed their faith in God and sang in the choir at church, they were not being faithful to God because of fornication. And they were lying to close family and friends to protect their reputation and keep themselves from, from judgment. Just one example. Sin leads to lies, which leads to walking in darkness. It's an attempt to keep people out of our personal life. Instead, Paul encourages the Colossian church to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul's point here is repeated when he addresses the Philippian church. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm as, as a church in one spirit, with one mind as a church, striving side by side as a church for faith of the gospel. Paul's statement to strive side by side is helpful for applying today's passage. It's helpful because to not strive, by, not, to not strive side by side for faith of the gospel, you will make yourself vulnerable to living in darkness. When a person pulls away from the fellowship, I get concerned. I get concerned because we were not created to live in isolation. And therefore, being in isolation will cause us to become vulnerable to walking in darkness. So we need to walk in the light within the church. To walk in the light means we are living in fellowship with one another. We allow the grace of God to work through the fellowship of believers. I hope we all desire to live out 1 John 1, 7. We walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. 
This verb here, walk, in verse 7, is the present tense and speaks of a continuous and consistent pattern of life. John is not saying we are to be sinless, but we are to live in a way where there is less sin in our lives by God's grace. That's walking in the light. And the walking in the light has terrific consequences. First, which is obvious, we have fellowship with God and others, meeting here in the local church. Second, walking in the light, you can bank on the fact that the blood of Jesus will cover your sin. That's the promise in verse 7. When we walk in the light, the light shows us who we are, sinners. But this is actually good and necessary. This is a good and necessary revelation about ourselves. Knowing who you truly are after the fall of Adam and Eve allows for the remedy to be correctly applied. As a result, the only way forward is to cling to the cross or to follow the metaphor in verse 7, to be washed in the blood. So John is showing us how to walk in the light and live out what we believe, especially with one another. Here's the next, if we say statement. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With this second, if we say, statement, John focuses on what you are saying to yourself. If you say you are not a sinner or you have not sinned, when you indeed have sinned, you live in a state of self-deception. And as a result, the truth of Christ is not in you. That's what the text says. Now, do you see how fundamental the doctrine of total depravity is to the Christian faith? In reform circles, like here at Sovereign Grace, you won't find many people who say they don't have inherited sin. In reform circles, total depravity is, is fairly established, meaning, if you don't know that term, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, all humanity inherited has been affected by a sin nature, and the relationship between man and God has been broken and needs to be restored. So we can believe that, but I, but I think there's still a lesson for us in verse 8. We may theologically believe we have a sin nature, but can work hard to deceive ourselves and hide our sin. I know this can be the case with me. It's like, this is Sean Powers revealing himself. I know what I did was wrong, but look at that guy over there. It's nowhere near as bad. We make those kind of excuses. Perhaps you say, you know, I lusted after that person walking by me at the mall, but at least I didn't commit adultery. You see, we compare our sin with the sin of other people if that somehow dims the stain of sin on our own soul. And in trying to justify our sin, we ignore what Jesus said about lust, for example, in Matthew 5. We've got to stop playing games and take sin. Seriously, we've got to stop lying to ourselves. We read in verse 9, the way out of self-deception, and this is a mercy from God, the way out of self-deception is confession. And confession is wonderful. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
So let's think about confession in terms of our relationship with God. Confession is a series of beautiful moments between you and God. Confession of sin is an awesome privilege for the Christian. It really is. I grew up in a tradition where confession was a drag. Like, I gotta go confession, I gotta go say these things and those things, and that is not the case at all in Scripture. Confession of sin is evidence of God's grace at work in the Christian's life. And confession is the work of a humble person. Proud people don't willingly confess, but the humble eagerly approach confession, ready to lay down self-deception, ready to receive all the grace that God has for them as they confess. Confession in verse 9 is in the present tense, and this Greek verb indicates that confession is continually active, meaning confession is to be done continuously with God's goodness and grace in view. Let me, one word of warning, living in confession, living in a constant state of confession isn't a woe is me or self-pity condition. That is not the case at all. But it's an acknowledgement that we are wholly dependent upon God because of our sin. We are dependent upon his grace. Confession of our sin leads us to the cross where the grace of God flows from the blood of Jesus Christ. An old Presbyterian prayer captures the essence of sin and confession. It says this, Almighty God, you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit, to confess our sin so that as we come to you, come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Confessional prayers like this, like I said, keep us in a constant state of dependence upon God and the work of Christ. It keeps us out of self-deception. We can't lie to ourselves about our sinful condition and about our great need for forgiveness. When we acknowledge our sinful condition and confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive. God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So in light of this, do you see how acknowledging who you really are, humbly confessing sin, only magnifies Jesus Christ crucified and all that his death accomplished for you? So we can't lie to ourselves, and in doing so, uh, we would be unable to apply the gospel to our lives. Now, the third, if we say, statement, verse 10. John cautions us to not to lie to others. That was the first one, not to ourselves, and now to God. If we say, in verse 10, we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. I love this, the story of a woman who confided in hymn writer Charles Wesley, uh, 18th, century, 18th century leader of, an, of the English uh, Methodist Church. She, as he, she was confiding in him, she said, I am a great sinner. I'm a Christian, but sometimes I fail so dreadfully. Please pray for me. Wesley 
looked at her rather sternly and replied, Yes, madam, I will pray for you, for truly you are a great sinner. Taken aback by Wesley's demeanor and straightforward reply, she answered, What do you mean? I've never done anything very wrong. Anyone who comes up to confess, I won't give you that reply. <laughs> that is, that is. In verse 10, John is dealing with someone similar to this woman, namely perhaps a person who acknowledges her depravity but fails to see the depth of her depravity, or worse, someone who thinks he or she is just perfectly sanctified. I got to figure it out. Verse 10 is obviously easily connected to verse 8 and 9, but in this if we say statement, John wants to make it clear that if you excuse yourself from sin, no matter how small or how great, you are lying to God. You are hiding your sin as if God doesn't see, which is foolish. And the fact of the matter is this, all sin, no matter how big, small, how we categorize it, is an offense to a holy God and is seen by an omnipresent God. Verse 10 is stated in the negative. Let's take this verse and declare it in the positive and then see how it applies. So here's, that, here's verse 10 stated in the positive. If we say we have sinned, if you're going to make that confession, believe that, we make him a truth teller. And his word is in us. There are two remarkable responses to, to acknowledging our depravity. First, we declare God is truth and that he speaks truth, namely, in his word. Second, the word of God, Jesus Christ, is in us. I think John uses the word, word, which is logos in the Greek, to remind us of what we read in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Acknowledging that we are sinners is to say that God is true, that his word is true. And here's the connection and progression between these three, if we say, statements. If you lie to others and to yourself, you're actually already lying to the holy God of the universe. And you will be denying the truth. Now, I told you this was hard work. It's the tension we all face between being made holy and walking in holiness, being justified and realizing we're still a sinner. So if I were to end now, I would not do you a service. Yes, we need to let verses 6 and 10, 6 to 10, shake us from the false lies in which we view our sin. What John is saying in this passage is there needs to be a course correction. But the course correction isn't to condemnation. I pray that condemnation is not what you hear this morning. I really do. Romans 8.1 calls down from the mountaintops. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Thank you. None. Later in 1 John, he says this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Therefore, the course correction for Christians isn't to condemnation, but it's to the cross. 
John peppered the message of the cross already between verses 6 to 10, but he makes it crystal clear in chapter 2, in these verse two, first two verses. The tender pastor theologian begins by saying, my little children. After talking about sin, he says, my little children. Do you hear the assurance in that statement? God's child. Yeah, we got, we got work to do. But you're God's child. If I were to stop right there, I would still be put in awe that God would call me his child in spite of my sin. All throughout 1 John, God's people are called children. And it's actually the dominant metaphor used by John throughout this epistle. 13 times he says that in those five chapters. My little children, my children, over and over and over again. Its significance helps us to understand the heart of God for his people. When you are God's child, God is not looking to smite you or put you under his thumb, which is what some people think when we use the word sin. It's the opposite. God wants to tenderly bring you along so you will see the riches of his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father wants his children to see the gospel more enticing than any earthly sin. Hence the encouragement we read right here, not to sin. So John continues in chapter 2, verse 1. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So after exhorting us to confess sin in verse 9, John tells us to flee to our Savior. Flee to Jesus. It's interesting that while we are called to fight against remaining sin throughout the Bible, specifically in the Pauline epistles, John doesn't take us there specifically. John has actually a different objective. He takes us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. John wants to remind you once again what Christ has done to break the power and penalty of sin in your life. John wants you to gaze upon the cross as you come to him with your sin. There are two points regarding the work of Christ in which we appeal to in light of our sin and our sin nature from this passage. First, it says that Christ is our advocate. That was verse one. And then second, Christ did an atoning work for us because of our sin, verse two. John uses the word propitiation to describe the atoning work of Christ, which we'll get to in a moment. John Calvin rightly connects Christ our advocate and Christ our propitiation in his commentary in 1 John. This is what he says. In order to show us how to return into favor with God, John says that Christ is our advocate. For he appears before God for this end, that he may exercise towards us the power and efficacy of his sacrifice. What Calvin echoes from 1 John chapter 2, 
verse 1 and 2, is that favor from God means you have an advocate who appeals on your behalf and who is a sacrifice on your behalf. So let's consider our advocate with a legal courtroom analogy and then consider Christ our propitiation within the context of a temple sacrifice. First, advocate. Because of our sin, we need an advocate before the holy judge of the universe. The word advocate in the Greek paraglide case, probably pronounce it wrong, meaning it's one who is called in to help or one who comes alongside you in your time of need. You can think of a lawyer who advocates for a defendant, right? You've seen law and order. You can picture that in your head in one second. Advocate, lawyer, defendant. So Jesus is the one we call to for help, and he is the one who comes alongside us in our time of need. On the day of judgment, we're in Revelation, we're in that series, so we're going to learn more about that. On the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you will need someone to advocate on your behalf. Because of everything John said in verses 5 to 10 in chapter 1. Out of all the times the word advocate is used in the New Testament, this is actually the only time it's connected to Jesus, which is interesting. All the other times, advocate is connected to the Holy Spirit. So I ask, why? What's the significance? Here's the significance. On your own, you cannot be made right with God because of your sin. You need a sinless savior to plead on your behalf. Again, this makes moments of confession all the more meaningful because you are appealing to someone greater than yourself. In the, in the cosmic courtroom, Jesus is the one interceding on your behalf. He's receiving your confessions. And the advocate says this to you, come to me. Confess to me. Allow me to carry your burdens. Allow me to deal with your sin. Allow me to intercede on your behalf. Let me show you how amazing my grace is for you. Again, here's Calvin. He says this, the intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. That God then does not impute to us our sins. He doesn't hold us accountable for our sins. This comes to us because he has regard to Christ as intercessor. Only one person can intercede on your behalf before the holy and just God and ensure your sin is not held against you. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Atonement talked about advocate now atonement chapter 2 verse 2 because of your sin we need someone to be a propitiation for our sin before the holy just God you need someone to not only advocate on your behalf but take your place as the object of wrath from a holy God in verse 2, John continues to unfold the work of Christ on our behalf. In verse 2, we move from the courtroom to the temple where sacrifices of sin are made. In the Old Testament, Israel had to continuously perform sacrifices to appease the wrath of God because of their sin. 
their constant idolatry, their constant disobedience. In the New Testament, Christ is now the final and perfect sacrifice. It says that the sacrifice was a propitiation for our sin. Now, we don't use the word propitiation often, other than when you read specific translations of the Bible. So what is propitiation? The word carries this idea of satisfaction. Jesus Christ, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's holiness and turned away his righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. The hell that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. That is the power of the gospel. And it's from the blood of this great sacrifice where the grace of God flows to sinners. The blood flows to his elect sheep. Those who by grace, by God's grace, are saved through faith. From that comes a, an ocean of grace for his people. From the atoning blood of Christ flows the grace of God to save. And it's from the atoning blood of Christ where we, where we receive the grace to be sanctified. And it's this same grace that causes his people to walk in the light. Again, our, our confession of sin, in our confession of sin, we can appeal to someone greater. The one who took on the penalty of sin so that we could be free from sin. So what we have here in 1 John, specifically in that passage, is indeed a reality check. But hear this, it's a reality check that is just smothered in the grace of the gospel. Smothered. It's a message that lures us into seeing the cross of Jesus Christ much bigger than we have ever seen it before. This passage shows us, despite our sin, despite our sin, how amazing the grace of God is for your life. God is kind and good. And he says, come to me. Come to me. We have been justified. But by God's grace, we will continue to be sanctified as well. As we transition into the response song, my plea to you is this. Walk in the light by allowing God to do the heart work. Apply the gospel to your life. Confess sin to the Lord, perhaps. But receive, hear this, receive the ocean of grace that he provides through Jesus Christ.